Also, as we live in this uh, modern age of technology, if you're like me and you have an email account, you are receiving emails from all over the place. Maybe ones you didn't solicit. Maybe some from Nigeria. I keep getting these emails from Nigeria telling me that there is this wealthy widow who's heard about my good life and good deeds has passed away and wants me to have the two million pounds that she left. Boy, well, that's great. I can't, Im- I can't imagine she's heard about me all the way over in England or Africa or wherever. Now, obviously, that is a scam. It's a scam. But it is an appeal, isn't it? It's an appeal inwardly to what if those riches were real? So let's just, let's just pretend for a moment that somehow you did come into a windfall of money. You had a wealthy relative that left you a lot of money. Or perhaps you made the right investment, whether it was a fluke or through wisdom or you invested in an IPO, whatever. But somehow you came into some riches that you did not have before. Let's just put out a number there, $2 million. Let's say you instantly had that money. What would you do with that money? How would it change your life? Would you quit your job? Would you spend it? What or who would you spend it on? Would you save it? What or who would you save it for? And here's the real question and where we're going today is what does that money, what would that windfall do to your soul? What does it do to your soul? How you think about life. How you would think about God and relate to God and how you think about others and relate to them. And that's where Jesus is going to go today. That's where he's going to be digging. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack them open to Luke chapter 12 because that's where we're going to be. But we have been going through a short series in the Gospel of Luke here in this chapter. And it's all about living for eternity. And the first 12 verses of this chapter, Jesus is talking about he's bringing a kingdom, a kingdom that's worth living for and a kingdom that's even worth dying for. Because even in death, his kingdom does not stop. It can't be stopped by death. In fact, it becomes more real after we're done on this side of heaven. But today, Jesus is interacting in a crowd. This whole conversation is happening in a big crowd. And the issue of how we relate to our possessions, it comes into focus. A man in the crowd asks him to settle accounts with his inheritance, with his brother. And as we see how we relate to our possessions, tells us a lot about our soul. It tells us about what's important to us. And it tells us where we believe life really comes from. So before we dive into God's Word, I'm going to ask that we pray one more time because this is important and Jesus has these words for us. So let me pray and then we'll, we'll dive in. So Lord Jesus, we know you have the words of life. We know that you are life. 
Would you open our eyes to what you have to say to us through your word? Give us grace to receive it. And help us relate rightly to you and rightly to the things you give us. So do your work in us, we pray. And it is in your name I pray. Amen. So here we are at verse 13. We'll pick it up. Here we are in this crowd. Verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger, bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So this whole thing comes into play. Jesus is in a crowd, and somebody yells out to him, Jesus, hey, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. Note that he's not really asking Jesus what he should do. He's telling Jesus what he should do. You, Jesus, make this guy, my brother, divide the inheritance with me. Now, this is the first century, okay? And this is kind of typically how inheritance worked. If there were multiple brothers, what would happen is the inheritance, the lion's share would go to the older brother, which would probably be about, let's just say there were two brothers, so two-thirds would go to the older brother because he was considered to be the patriarch. He was the one who had to take care of the rest of the family. That was the, the thought, at least, of, of how that's supposed to go down. And then the, 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 remi- the remainder would go to the other sibling or the other sh- siblings. Now, and, he was the ex- and the older brother was usually the executor of the estate. Now, we really don't know the details of what was going on. I mean, this man just makes a demand on Jesus, help me out here. But usually, it's you know, saying, I want my fair share. Oftentimes fair share means what I think is best for me. I'm going to ask you a question. This might have happened in your family, it happened in mine. How many of you have family members who are divided because of squabbling over inheritance? It's happened in my family. It's sad. Brothers and sisters who don't relate to each other anymore don't even acknowledge each other because they're fighting over who gets their fair share. But here's what I want you to notice in this. How Jesus responds. He says this in verse 14. Man, 
Who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you two? Part of me goes, what do you mean, Jesus? I mean, you're, you're the perfect judge. You're the king. I mean, you could, you could make this decision and do it right and do it justly, but that would have been the easy way out. He would just have to make a decision and be done. Instead of making a decision in this situation, Jesus addresses the heart of the issue in this situation. You ever notice how Jesus always seems to go after the heart? And so he says in verse 15, he says, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Here's what I want you to know. If you forget everything I say today, your life is not your stuff. Your life is not your stuff. God is. Bless you, brother. Your life is not your stuff. I want everyone to say that with me right now. Your life is not your stuff. Jesus says, watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed or covetousness. I'm going to define greed as this. Greed is the false belief that the more stuff you have, the more life you have. The more stuff you have, the more life you have. And it's easy to fall into that trap, right? Let's go back to that imagining. What, if, what would you do if you had $2 million? Imagine the debt you could get yourself free from. Imagine the opportunities you've had. Imagine the thought of you wouldn't have to worry about the future, about paying the bills where to live, what have you. You got it covered. And it's easy to believe that our possessions are life because we are contingent creatures, right? We actually do need food, shelter, and clothing. We are people, we're creatures that need sustenance. As I said, food, shelter, clothing, Wi-Fi, and unlimited data, and texting, right? And we live in a culture that tells us that too, right? We're bombarded every day by messages. You need to buy this. You need to upgrade your phone. You need to buy this product. You need to subscribe to this service. Until you do so, you won't be truly living. That's what our society is telling us as well. It's easy to believe that our possessions are our life. But this is the false belief. The false belief that Jesus dealt with when he was tempted in the desert in Luke chapter 4. And Satan says to him, if you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Because <laughs> that's where your life is really at, Jesus. And Jesus responds. Actually, I'm going I'm to read from the Old Testament passage that Jesus quoted because it's even more full. Man does not live by bread alone. This is, this is from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. And he's talking to the people of Israel who've been in the desert for 40 years now. And 
And Moses says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which knew neither your fathers had known, excuse had known to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord is our life, not our stuff. And even the Apostle Paul kind of addresses this in kind of an offhand way. In the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5, he says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, so it just seems to be all kind of sexual and bad uh, thoughts-wise, right? But then the last word is, and greed. And greed, which is idolatry. Greed, which is idolatry. Idolatry is putting something else in the place of God, whether that takes its place in our hearts or our minds. So loving stuff more than God, or that thinking that life is our stuff rather than the giver. And so Jesus tells this story. Now let's pick it up in verse 16 to illustrate his point. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Now here's what I want you to notice. It's the ground that yields an abundant harvest. It wasn't this man's wise planting, you know, strategy. He didn't have some college of agriculture helping him. It wasn't, you know, that he planted the right seed for Monsanto or DeKalb. No, it just, it happened. He had a bumper crop, an abundant crop, so much so that he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know what to do with it. And by the way, I want to say this. There's nothing wrong with possessions and things that God blesses you with. The real question is, what will you do with it? That's the big question. Unfortunately, this man turned to self. He turned to self. And what we'll see is a series of self-decisions. First of all, a self-consultation. Verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Problem analysis. I have more, it's overproduction, more product than I can currently store for myself. Self-solution. Verse 18. Then he said, this is what I will do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Build a bigger barn, increase capacity to keep it all for self. And then self-celebration. And I will say to myself, literally I'll say to my soul, you're speaking to yourself, so it's a little bit crazy already, right? Soul, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I've got life stored up for years. I can take it easy. I'm living the dream. I can eat, drink, and be merry. That word merry is where we get the word euphoria from. 
this man was a self-made man, apparently. In fact, we would probably celebrate him in the Wall Street Journal. Man, great business sense. Great plan. But note, everything was about self. He didn't consult a friend, a relative, an elder, a synagogue leader, anyone in the community. No, he was his own counsel. He didn't even pray to God. God, what do I do with this? No, all self. And number two, he did not consider any other option than saving the crop for himself. How might this benefit the community? Benefit others? Number three, here's what I want you to notice about this self thing. He was in isolation. This is a community, this is a community that thrived on relationships. Seeing people at the gate. And all this is all self-contained. This man was not in community, he was in isolation. And all I could see is his own needs and his own wants. I'm going to ask you, if you were in his situation, what would you do? And I, I want you to answer that question honestly in your own heart. Not because you have to give me the answer. But because this is the, the question that Jesus is asking. What would you do? How would you approach this? What is your relationship to stuff? Jesus warns what greed can do in a heart. But this man thought he had life by the tail. He's in for a rude awakening, though. What I call a soul reckoning. Verse 20. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? The word fool there has a very specific use in the Scriptures. A fool is somebody who lives like there is no God. In fact, the opening words of Psalm 14 are, are, say that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. This man was oblivious to God, let alone anyone else for that matter. He had no consideration of his actions through that lens. But also now, the reality had set in, right? Life is fragile. It can be taken from you just like that. One of the coolest things uh, that happened at the men's retreat is I got to hang out with Eli Custer in my small group. And he had been to Cuba earlier in late December, early January. And the thing he told me is, you know, being there... People are just people. You know, kids are kids. People have wants and needs. But I also realize that life is fragile. And I think that's a great, great realization for a young man who's probably about 20, 21 years old. Great realization. When I lived in Santa Barbara, working with young college students, I lost a man named Cliff Varney. Cliff was a 21-year-old former Marine driving home one night from work, loved Jesus, and he had a head-on crash with a drunk driver in the middle of the night. Life is fragile. And life is not your stuff. 
You can't take it with you. You can't hold on to it. It's not the place where life is really found. And that's what Jesus is trying to warn us about. That's what Jesus is trying to say to us and to that crowd. Verse 21, the conclusion of the matter. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. We've kind of spent a lot of time touching on the self-centeredness of this man, but what about the thing about being rich toward God? What do you think about that comment? Is God needy? Does he need us to give to him? Does he need our stuff? No, he doesn't. In fact, the scripture says the truth of the matter is he owns it all. Psalm 24 starts out saying, the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. But again, getting back to these basic principles. That number one, that God is our life. And He is the one who sustains us. Every breath, everything you have, He is the one holding you up. That's why God brought His people into the wilderness and sustained them for 40 years where there was nothing. There was nothing. And God met them every day with this stuff called manna, bread from heaven. Put water where there was no water. This is because I am your life. That's what he was trying to communicate to his people. Everything we have from him is from him. And we need to acknowledge that. So when we give... That's what we're doing. We're actually acknowledging that everything we have is from Him. That He is our life. And when we give to others, you know what God says? Because these people are made in my image, you're actually giving to me. Proverbs 19.17 says, If you're gracious to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. Interesting. And He will pay you back. Not that we're making God an investment company, but he says, look, you're giving to me when you do that. When you recognize that using your stuff for the benefit of others, you're giving to me. And here's the other thing. This is so amazing. Think about it. We start out as aliens and strangers with God. We start out as his enemies. And then he reconciles us to himself. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing grace, what we sang about earlier. But here's the thing. It not only stops there. He says, and now I'm going to turn you around and I want to use you for my purposes to do the same thing in other men and women's life. And what joy there is. We get to participate in his kingdom work. We get to participate in his kingdom work. Honestly, it's giving back is, is kind of like salvation because he's given life to us already in Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to participate. And not only that, when we do so, he also says, by the way, that's going to get stored up as reward in heaven. And it can never perish. It can't ever be stolen. It's never going to wear out. Wow. 
Maybe God is asking us to invest in His kingdom. It will last forever. And here's the other thing. God is dealing with our hearts. He's dealing with our souls. And what we spend our money and possessions on is an indication of what we value. Jesus is going to say in this same chapter, He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to ask you a question, and you don't have to answer me. But does it bother you that I'm talking about money this morning? And I'm, I'm not trying to be attack you or anything of that nature. I'm just trying to point out that if it bothers you, what is your relationship to your possessions? How do you view that, especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, in relation to Him and His kingdom? Are you kind of holding on to stuff? Because I'm not going to ask you to give more. That's not my message today, folks. But I'm going to ask you, are you treasuring His kingdom? And if we are, how might that inform how we do handle our possessions? If you're like me, I'll loan my stuff to my neighbors, right? Sometimes my neighbors hold on to my stuff too long. Anyone been there? But maybe I can release that a little bit more. Maybe back to our opening scenario where there's conflict between members of a family over the inheritance. If we think God is our life rather than our possessions, how does that inform that interaction and those relationships? And how might it keep us from idolatry of saying my life is my stuff? No. My life is my God, my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, here's what I want to tell you. God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. That's what He wants. He wants you to come to know Him, to put faith in Him, what He's done for you on the cross and rising from the dead. And to give you life that you don't have in yourself. And then after you learn the joy of following Him, yeah, He may ask you to give you your stuff. But it's, it's to invest in His kingdom. It's to give you joy. It's to give you reward. See, we can't buy our way into heaven. That's not how it works. But when we are in His kingdom, then He allows us to invest in it with the physical stuff we have. And if we are believers, well, then we need to know that God gives us everything we need. And we're going to look at that more specifically next week. But if God does bless us with an abundance, what's our right response? <laughs> Number one, it's thanksgiving. It's God, thank you. Everything I have is from you. Number two, it's giving. Cheerfully. Because we can't outgive God. But number two, he allows us again to invest in his kingdom, a treasure that can't be lost. I, I came across this quote from Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, and I think it, it's been true of my life. It's true for eternity. 
He says, I've held many things in my hand, and I've lost them all. But whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. We can trust God with our stuff. Number three, we need to be content people. We need to be content with what God gives us. And this is out of 1 Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul instructing us out of chapter 6. It says this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. <laughs> the more you stuff you have, the more temptations you have. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not the root of all evil. It's the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Sometimes in pursuing those things, we have to know ourselves, is my abundance taking me down the wrong pathway? Maybe we need to release those things. In that same chapter, this is what Paul says, if you happen to be well off, which is most of us, to be honest with you, compared to the rest of this world. Verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and be rich in good deeds and be generous and be willing to share. In this they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so they will take hold of life that is truly life. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's not about keeping up with the Joneses. Because that's not where life is really found. It's all going to perish anyway. Last of all is about treasuring. Again, Jesus, Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'm going to end, if you've been here at Berean, you're going to, you've heard this before, with my favorite verse. Which is Psalm 16, verse 2. It says in the NIV, I said to the Lord... You are my Lord, and apart from you, I have no good thing. Folks, that's how we need to relate to our stuff. Jesus, you may have allowed me to have two million dollars, but apart from you, I have no good thing. Jesus, you may have brought, brought this blessing into my life, but apart from you, I have no good thing. Jesus, I don't know where the money's going to come from for the bills to be paid for this week. But apart from you, I have no good thing. Because our stuff is not our life. Jesus is. That's what He wants us to know. That's how He wants us to live. And folks, when you know that, you are freed up to live life so much better. And you see God's hand so much more. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask Brian and the worship team to come and close us here. So Lord Jesus, this word may hit home with us. And if it does, I know it does with me. 
would you give us the grace to release those things and once again affirm and confirm that you are our life, not our stuff. (laughs) This life is but a shadow. And it's going to pass. But what we do for you, what we invest in for you, will last. But whether we are rich or whether we are poor, Lord, we are yours. And you are our life. And ultimately our joy is not found on this side of heaven. So Lord, would you do your work in our hearts and align us with Psalm 16 too. Lord Jesus, apart from you, we have no good thing. Help us to know that. Help us to walk out of here and apply that to our lives practically and in our affections, in our deepest intercesses of our hearts. And we have our ultimate joy in you. I'm so grateful, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your life-giving words today. And it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.